0: Here's something that I'm asking. What do we stand to learn from 2020? I mean, really, what do we stand to learn? What, and, and here's another kind of related question What sort of spiritual stance is needed in 2021? I'm asking that like personally, collectively, what kind of spiritual stance is needed in 2021? Because it almost feels like, What happened? And and perhaps because the pandemic is over and we're still talking about Trump in the news, it feels like 2020 is just being extended. And I think we have an incredible opportunity right now, like personally, in America, globally, to ask some challenging questions. What have we learned about the way people are? And today I want to talk about what I'm going to call mass intoxication. We ought to be having a conversation about mass movements, what I'm calling mass intoxication. I just suddenly a Kendrick Lamar line popped into my head. Mass hallucination, baby. What is it? What, why is it contagious? What is being activated? And... Anyway, that's, that's what I want to try to do today. This has been kind of churning over in my mind for a couple of months, this podcast. And I've been reading some Jung, as you might expect, uh, who had a lot to say about mass movements, who who was writing, at least in this case, after World War II. And the consequences of mass intoxication were Evident everywhere one looked in Europe. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about our, su- our susceptibility to it. But maybe more importantly, we have an opportunity. That's what I'd like to say. So welcome to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. That's where I'm going today. Let me do a couple of advertising things. I am offering a class. This is my third year offering this class called Lent Descent, where we take Lent and we talk about the journey of descent and return which the the traditional Lent season is meant to um, to mirror and to invite us into the 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness with Jesus um, the the anticipatory time period uh, toward Easter so I want to talk about it and, and I like I like to use the Book of Jonah as a frame, and and I think there are six stages or phases of the uh, transformational journey that the Book of Jonah embodies and points toward or symbolizes, might be the best way to say it. So this will be six weeks. We meet on Sunday afternoons from 3 to 5, Eastern Standard Time, online, Zoom, small group, and there's about an hour of teaching and an hour or so of processing where we go through all six stages or phases. So um, yeah, if that interests you, go to my website, kentdobson.com. It's right on the home p- page. Click on it. It'll take you to a form, a questionnaire. It's kind of an extensive questionnaire, but I just want to kind of know where you're coming from. And uh, the cost, at least in my in my view, uh I suppose, compared to my other programs, very affordable, 200 bucks for six weeks. And if you can't make all six, those uh, sessions will be recorded so you can watch them afterwards and stay sort of caught up. And I have a few spots left. So if that interests you, if you feel like you're in a kind of descent and return journey, or if you feel like you're underwater, or if you feel like you're at the beginning of something, or you feel like you've experienced something, but you're not sure how to integrate it, any one of those things, I think this particular class will be helpful to you. Um, So yeah, that's a plug for that. Maybe a couple of other long-term things, uh, well, short-term and long-term. A short-term thing is I'm working on a podcast based on your questions. So send me your questions, put them on Facebook, I prefer you message me on Facebook and direct message me on Instagram just to keep it. I don't know. There's something nice about asking your question in private (laughs) that I think is important, or you can email me, but I'm starting to collect them. I'm getting some in. I'd love my Patreon supporters, which I cannot thank you enough for making this podcast happen. Really, really. Um, you can, uh, message me through Patreon. If you'd like to become a uh, patron, um, uh, patreon.com forward slash Kent Dobson is a way to do that. Um, I think about it as kind of like a virtual tip jar. So <laughs> really thanks. Uh, but anyway, send me your questions. I'm already getting some very interesting ones that I think, um, uh, I'll, I'll give some thought to and create a podcast, uh, around that. Um, long-term I'm looking ahead to, uh, restarting my Israel trips. I have tried for the last 15 years, but maybe more consciously the last 10 years to revive the ancient discipline of spiritual pilgrimage, physical pilgrimage. And, um, that's how I think about my Israel trips. It's a spiritual odyssey. And yes, we go deep into the biblical stories and narratives, the landscape, the, the places we talk a little bit about politics. Um, and, uh, I have found that these trips continue to challenge me and challenge other people in the best possible ways. So if that is on your radar, like you've always wanted to do a a trip to Israel, I'm going to do another one in 2022. I'm starting to talk to a church uh, from Denver, um, but it will be open to the public, and as best we can (laughs) tell— Uh, things will be back open again in Israel according to uh, my friends and the people I work with there. So anyway, the details will eventually be on my website but I'm just giving you a heads up that if that interests you spring 2022 uh, put that away in the back of your mind and and um, yeah so I think uh, oh, I should mention if you missed the last couple of podcasts, listen to them. I've started a a series that I'm calling the Forum I talked to Ryan Meeks, a friend of mine, Bill Plotkin, a mentor of mine about his new book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, um, and I'm going to roll out a few more. I've got a conversation with some friends in Israel in the works. I've got um, a conversation with Paul Moore, who helped start this podcast, uh, and maybe there are others that you would like to see, to see me interact with, you know, hey, I'm open to your suggestions and connections. So um, I'm finding it kind of intriguing And meaningful to do a sort of unscripted conversation and see what comes up. So that's it, I think, for um, by way of advertising. Let's jump right into the podcast now. Mass intoxication. Um, I think we must understand our susceptibility to mass intoxication, to the energetic wave that can sweep over the conscious mind and take hold. It seems to have a kind of power um, that is very hard for the rational, sophisticated, educated, uh, enlightened, so to speak, mind to resist. And in a culture, in a polarized, polarizing culture, and I, I'm talking globally, not just picking on American culture. In a globalizing culture, the the ways we might get activated and by isms and ideologies, it it it's, it ramps up. So um, that's just kind of like uh, an opening thought, and and maybe maybe to say it directly: don't think you're above this. Don't think you're above this. Don't think because you're on the left or you're on the right that you're somehow immune, or or you're you take the third way, and uh, don't 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 be so naive, because these forces are powerful. Anyone that's ever been to a U2 concert or pick your favorite band knows what kind of crowd energy. Um, just how contagious it is. You think COVID-19 is contagious, try the energy of a crowd. Um, and so that's what I want to dig into. I'm going to read a bit from Jung today from an essay uh, called Civilization in Transition. It's, it's in a book I have called The Undiscovered Self, one of my favorite uh, collection of uh, Carl Jung's work. So um, he, he is a bit difficult to read. In fact, I don't really think about my relationship with Jung as someone I read, but it's much more like someone I study and someone that puts pressure on my worldview from time to time. So um, I'm not pretending to be a Jungian or a Jungian analyst or a Jungian expert, or I'm just a student. I'm a student. I've, I've been a student for some time of the ancient ways and of the archetypes and of the underworld and of... Um, uh, of religion and spiritualities and the origins of these things, and so Carl Jung is relatively new to my my um, way of seeing the world. But anyway, I do want to read from him because he writes directly about mass movements, so I'll pull some things from that. But I want to make a couple of opening kind of uh, suggestions. I'm I, in, in some ways I'm skipping to the end because I'd like to make some real personal claims of things that that I I believe are needed now in 2021. In other words, I'm trying to answer the question up front, what do we stand to learn from 2020? And the first most direct one is we need humility. As TS Eliot says, humility is endless. That's what we need right now. We need to um I just just popped into my head where where you know, Yahweh in the book of Ezekiel says, says to him, take this scroll and eat it. And that's what I mean. Take the scroll of humility and consume. And I think we have reason to be humble in about 75 different ways. Some of them are just kind of the most obvious ones, which is the information at hand is overwhelming. So humility. The the scale of global issues and problems is enormous, so let's ingest the scroll of humility. Um, The unconscious and its powers and its forces is like an ocean, so let's not be too convinced that we know ourselves all that well, and we know what we think, even we know what we believe. And, and even worse, we know that we're right in the things that we believe. Just humility. You know, the Bible says, pride cometh before a fall. You know, it's just a warning. It's like, and we know that we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't apply to me. So I'm, I'm making a case. And, and if we go back to the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks, one of the major sins, they probably wouldn't have used that word, was hubris. You know, was was Icarus flying too close to the sun, or um, or I think uh, Helios' son who who begs to drive the chariot across the sky, and Helios says this is a bad idea. You cannot do it. You cannot handle these powers. They're too powerful, but he's too young and he's too convinced. And Helios made a promise and he gets himself into a bind and he lets his son drive the chariot across the sky. And at first he drives too high and the earth freezes and then he drives too low and it burns up and Zeus has to intervene and strike him dead. So a warning, hubris. And we and and Trump I think and other world leaders have been um, have been warnings uh, a phrase like I alone can fix it is like flying too close to the earth and it's gonna burn things it's gonna burn things up and I'm speaking archetypally I'm not even really picking on him as a person although he you know must take personal responsibility for uh, His own way of being in the world, as we all do. So, um, humility is endless. To quote uh, T.S. Eliot, and let's take the path of the eternal. And the second thing I'd like to say, just (laughs) by way of concluding at the beginning, mass intoxication is contagious. So just be careful. Um, You know, like I don't know if you, when I was a kid, you know, the the thing to say to your junior higher, you know, things I heard from my parents. You know, when I said everybody's doing it, you know, well, if everybody, you know, uh, was, was jumping off a cliff, would you do that? Well, my, my feeling was, yeah, I would, you know, because I don't know why. I, that's part of adolescence to uh, conform to the group field. So it's contagious, and uh, we ought not to act like we're above it. Um, the other thing that I think is called for and this is by way of spiritual stance in 2021, is uh, a letting go of resentment. I have been carrying a lot of resentment toward other people, other views, people who I think are wrong or immoral or unethical or immature. And it's not that we should live in a judgment-free culture. I think it's okay to even at times stick your neck out and say this and not that and and to say, well, I, in my view, this is immoral or unethical, or, or this doesn't represent my values, and and I think, um, I think this is wrong and ought to be changed. And so I'm not against. I'm not arguing for a flatland, a flatland of of, of postmodern value-free uh, landscape. Not at all. Um, but I am saying what's poisonous is the resentment that we carry um, and that eats us alive. And, and maybe 2021 is an opportunity to let go of some resentment, which brings us to really old-fashioned words like forgiveness and grace and listening and empathy and opening oneself up to the other. You know, That's really challenging spiritual terrain to walk into consciously. But I think it's needed now. Um, and maybe just one other kind of, uh, point here. I don't think we're in an age where there's an absence of knowledge. I know there's misinformation and disinformation. These are odd words, by the way. I like to pay attention to the lexicon. I'd never heard a word like misinformation five years ago. And all of a sudden everybody's using it. Um, what does that even mean? You know, now that I think of it misinformation or disinformation, Anyway, I have <laughs> probably not, ought not to go down that rabbit hole right now. But w- my point is, we're not missing knowledge. We're missing love. We're missing love. And um, there's something powerful about the way the Scriptures—I think it's in the epistle of John, where he says God is love. You know, the divine—use different words—the unconscious, the— uh, mystery, the numinous, I don't know, uh, you fill in the blank, I prefer mystery, is love. And I suppose that's a kind of belief, My, it can be a belief, my guess is it's an experience. It's an experience that John, the writer here, experienced. Um, and we massively need our own experience of the mystery of love, because without that experience, it's very hard to give that away in the world. So, in some ways, I'm saying we need a, a kind of spiritual renewal and a return to the mystery, and a return to a kind of humble posture toward the wonder of life, so as to so so as. Uh, that our egos may be cracked open wide enough, and sometimes it only takes a crack, to taste the what John is calling uh, a God of love, or love itself. And people who have tasted such an opening cannot help but be more loving, and God, do we need that in the world. And that makes me sound kind of old-fashioned, like I suddenly felt like we need a spiritual revival you know, which brings up my fundamentalist past, but there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to a a reviving of what really matters. That's what's needed, I think, in 2021. So um let me just pause here for a second and see if there is anything else I want to add. I think that will do it. I, I wanna make now um two points that are are at least trying to get at what is happening when you and I and others are caught up in any kind of mass movement, what's actually happening to us as best I can. Um, And then I want to make two points about how do we get out of it? What's a way out? So I want it to be practical, even though I'm going to read some things from Jung and he's a little bit hard to understand. And uh, partly I just want to give you a flavor for his writing if you've never heard it before, because um, he writes with a certain kind of genius, I suppose. Um, so anyway, that, that's where I'm heading. So point number one, uh, in terms of what's happening, point number one is this mass movements offer security in chaotic times. That's why they're appealing. I mean, and think about any kind of group, any kind of group, any kind of, um, ideology, any kind of ism, any kind of, um, uh, wokeness, um, any kind of, uh, tribal slogan on a hat that keeps people in the group field, any kind of community, any kind of um, religious community with a very rigid set of beliefs that the insiders all hold? Why? Why Why would we want that? And part of the answer to the question is that it provides a level of security, and that security comes from the outside, So the, um, instead of from the inside, we could say. An outside authority, an outside force, an outside person, an outside group provides for us a measure of security in chaotic times. And that's not really something to make fun of or really quickly dismantle, because that can also be a good thing. Because when we're in chaotic times and you could use really contemporary language like we're activated, we're triggered, you know, our wounds are being brought up, we're traumatized, you know, any kind of system that says, okay, this is how the world is ordered is appealing. But in terms of growth, it tends to, over time, dismiss the individual. All the individual has to do is conform to the group field and to the group beliefs and doctrines and phrases and sayings, um, and then you're good to go. It, it dismisses what we could even call the growth of the inner person. I'm, I'm borrowing a little bit from, from Jung here. It, it, the, in, the inner landscape can remain unchanged. You can actually be way down the road and make it to the top of the, the hierarchy of your given group. Here I am at the top. I'm a pastor. I'm a political leader. I'm, and inside, you're, you've remained mostly unchanged on the level of transformation, on the level of love, we could say. You just have gotten really good at conforming and spitting back out slogans and phrases which create a certain kind of energy that people follow. Okay, so that's um, just a little bit of of the appeal. And here's a passage from Jung. Let me find it. All mass movements, as one might expect, slip with the greatest ease down an inclined plane made up of large numbers. (laughs) Where the many are, there is security. Where the many are, there is security. What the many believe must of course be true. What the many want must be worth striving for and necessary and therefore good. Do you see what I mean by sense of security? We all, I think, want to do what's good, ultimately, even if we wouldn't use that language. And we want to strive for what is true. And one of the um, illusions that is created is because many people believe this or do this or say this or are part of this or have signed up for this, it must be true and good. And I, I just have to say, we are all susceptible to this. I don't care if you're on the right, if you're on the left, I don't care what your personality is like, your disposition, we're susceptible to this. It's the, it's that energetic force of the group field. And, 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 and of course, Ewing is writing just after World War, World War II in this essay. And, um, and that's interesting in and of itself. But this is way, way, way before social media, where an obscure quote, or let's just say, an obscure tweet, that is that let's just say, cannot be factually um, affirmed or denied, or or what's the right way of saying it? It can't be proven or disproven. But because a lot of people retweet it, it has the feeling, the emotional feeling that it must be true. Look, 22,000 people have retweeted this. 250,000 tw- people have retweeted this. 1.7 million people have watched this YouTube video. Oh my God, we're onto something. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you hear what I'm saying? And and, and I want to just maybe um, point out, there's a lot of talk in the news right now of the QAnon conspiracy theories. And le- part of what I'm saying is they work because a large enough number of people believe that they work <laughs> or are retweeting it or there's a kind of uh, a feeling that it's going somewhere and that there are and there, there are insiders here and that we have the truth. And, and if we roll back the clock just four years ago, very similar kinds of conspiracy theories were happening around. Putin and Trump and some sort of backroom deal and what's really going on. I, it can't be proven or disproven, but because a lot of people were saying it, it had the feeling that it must be true. See, it's intoxicating. It's like, um, it's like drinking. It's like a drug. Don't think you're above it. Okay. I want to read a little bit more from this uh, quotation. In the clamor of the many resides the power to snatch wish fulfillments by force. Sweetest of all, however, is that gentle and painless slipping back into the kingdom of childhood, into the paradise of parental care, into the happy-go-luckiness and irresponsibility. All the thinking and looking after are done from the top. To all questions there is an answer, and for all the needs, the necessary provision is made. I mean, this is pretty damning. What he's saying here is that we become like children. It's a rushing back to infirmity in uh, to being an infant it's returning to the womb it's being hooked up to the umbilical cord it's being given answers and protection and safety and group um, to protect us from the outside world so that we don't have to take responsibility other people will care for us this leader is going to save us this person has all the answers the 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 statements here must be uh, concretely and literally true and will protect me do you hear what i'm saying what Jung is saying—that's <laughs> um, that's such a challenging way of putting it. The kingdom of childhood, and uh, maybe if you listen to my last podcast with Bill Plock and he said, you know, we live essentially in an adolescent culture. We haven't grown up. We don't have very many true adults, and a lot of spiritual movements, anywhere from you know, New Age. Uh, Breathwork to religious fundamentalism to the latest political party to wokeism often have a kind of current. I'm, there might be truth in any of those things, but th- it, the, it has a kind of current that sucks us back to childhood. Yep, my all my needs are met, all my questions are answered. I found the way. I found the group that I finally belong to, and now the world makes sense again. It actually is a way of resisting the increased complexity. See, one of the things that's challenging about growing up is the world becomes more complex, and actually we're shown more about our internal landscape and its complexities, and it's about integrating more and more of the complex, not going back to paradise, not going back to the garden. Remember, in the story in Genesis, Yahweh puts an angel with a flaming sword and says, you cannot go back. You cannot go back. You cannot go back. We will forever be east of Eden is the idea. Okay. All right. That was, um, getting a little fired up here. All right. Number two, number two, On in terms of what is happening, and this is a little bit harder to explain and I'll just do my best. One of the things that's happening is that the lid of our ego consciousness gets taken off for a moment. (laughs) The cap that has kept us, you know, you know, mostly like nice, polite people, gets cracked or taken off, and that could be a very good thing. I mean, part of spiritual growth and transformation is to have the ego cracked. And eventually, if you want to go all the way, to have the ego um, die and be resurrected. So there's something good in that. But what happens to in in a kind of group movement is that all of the instinctual forces that have been unintegrated get awakened. Things like revenge and fear and anger and finger pointing and scapegoating and blaming and self-righteousness and hubris and, um, um, a kind of, a, a kind of exaggerated good versus evil, often concluding and I am good and they are evil gets activated. It's like the gods and the goddesses awaken and especially, um, uh, suddenly, I just thought about um, the great father, the great mother, or Zeus. He's kind of Zeus is sort of like the ordering principle of all of the gods, and it's like what's happening here is Zeus is nowhere to be found, and maybe Zeus is like the leader of your group who's trying to bring some order. But what gets activated are all of the kind of wild and adolescent gods, kind of, and they're run they're running amok. In other words, the energy. Gets activated. This is, and maybe to make it a little more practical and less mythic, this is why somebody says, you know what? I'm going to go and march in the streets today. And they go and march in the streets and they start chanting slogans. And pretty soon they find themselves burning down a building. And if you would have stopped them at the beginning of this and said, do you have any intention of doing violence to to property and burning something down or uh, throwing gasoline on a cop car? Many, maybe a few, would have said yes. That was my intention all along. But I think most people who get caught, get caught up in this kind of thing, or looting, for example, didn't set off this way. But the energy—it's like uncapped, unintegrated, instinctual, primal forces awaken, and because they're 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 not well aimed, they run amok. Even and and by the way, I'm not at all defending the capital riots. But I imagine, I know some people planned. To do this, but I imagine others were just simply caught up, caught up in the energetic field and in the fury. Um, It's like possession. It's like being possessed by something. See, the church fathers and mothers were so unbelievably wise, the desert fathers and mothers. They said, when you get out to the wilderness, one of the things you have to confront are the demons. They come out. The afternoon demons come out. And all that stuff that you put on other people, to use contemporary psychological language, you realize is within. It's within. And it's, they're devouring and they're activating and they can possess me at any moment. See, these were uh, the church fathers and mothers were were the ones who were doing the early work. We could say who were paving the way for what I think needs to happen in the 21st century—a kind of radical um, self reckoning, we could say. Now, one more thing here: during the activation phase here, when these instinctual forces are awaken, are awakening, when you're caught up in an ideology, an ism, a group, group think, group field. Um, you divide the world up. That's what I was saying before, and I want to read a little little quote from from Jung here. Let me find it about this division that I think is so powerful. Um, okay, here it is. <laughs> he's picking a little bit on um, on what what he's calling the triumph of the goddess of reason. So he's got a lot to say in this essay. Civilization and transition about religion and and why we need still need at, le- at least religious symbols, um, not necessarily a religion as we as we ordinary ordinarily think of it, but these ordering symbolic. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, ordering symbols that can help us with the chaos of what's going on underneath. Anyway, he says. Um, With the triumph of the goddess of reason, a general neuroticizing of modern man sets in. A dissociation, a dissociation of personality analogous to the splitting of the world today by the iron curtain. This boundary line, bristling with barbed wire, runs through the psyche of modern man, no matter on which side he lives and I think that with so much talk of the border wall in America, it's the, the psychic manifestation of the very thing that Jung is describing here. He's taking the Iron Curtain saying, right down the, sp- the center of modern man, there's a split. And it doesn't matter on what side, but the sides are being drawn and there's barbed wire. And now we're doing the very same thing with arguing about a border wall. Something it, it, it's, it's symbolic of, of of a dissociation of a split i want to finish this um this thought here and just as the typical neurotic is unconscious of his sh- of his shadow side so the normal individual like the neurotic sees his shadow in his neighbor or in the man beyond the great divide it has even become a political and social duty to apostrophize the capitalism of the one, and the communism of the other as the very devil, so as to fascinate the outward eye and prevent it from looking within. Oh my God, this is, I mean, talk about some, some good writing here. Instead of the eye turning inward, like Jesus saying, take the plank out of your own eye. The wall phenomenon, the border wall, the iron curtain, sets up this, us versus them shadow dimension where I get to project onto the other. That person is the devil. And this is what, I mean, uh, back to QAnon, this is what QAnon conspiracy theories are doing with Democrats. Democrats are pedophiles. They're, um, they have these dark satanic cults, they they cannibalize children. This is, by the way, all part of the theory. And, and to our modern ears, this might sound insane, but this is actually something that's quite old. Uh, in fact, um, uh, Christian Europe accused Jews of the very same things, even eating children um, during Passover. So these kinds of accusations are actually quite old, and they're contagious. And w- what's appealing about them is that what I get to do is completely demonize the other side. And the left is doing the same thing to the right, completely demonizing. I mean, the way people, it kind of slips out, like the deplorables comment, but the way people on the left sometimes talk about um, make America great again supporters is with a kind of utter disdain, as if they're Satan themselves. And if they could just simply be gotten rid of, we could be again a pure society. See, it's... it's. um don't think you're above this. This is maybe the refrain of the entire podcast. I too get sucked up in this iron curtain kind of splitting. Okay. I hope you're with me so far. Okay. Now I want to try to talk about a way out. Just a couple of suggestions that are coming from Jung and, and also a little bit from from my own experience, my own opinion here. Um. Okay, so let's begin here. Straight from Jung, he says, the way out is to experience these forces within. Maybe another way of saying it is to bring consciousness to the internal forces, even to the instincts, uh, to own them, to um, acknowledge that they exist, uh, to bring increased awareness. I mean, this is part of uh, me- part of what uh, meditation can do meditation in terms of observing what is arising there it is not clinging to it that's the that's the the um, the ask of at least most forms of meditation to to let it go to let it pass to not cling um, but it's It's still to experience. Okay, this is actually happening. This is arising. Here it is arising. Here it is arising. And the other thing he says is to find symbols that express uh, these forces, to find symbols that express these forces. Now, traditionally, these symbols are um, religious in nature. Religious symbols actually contain—I'll have more to say about this in a second—but can can help us contain— the the cosmos within or here's a metaphor for you this is one i've been using for a while so beneath the ego is a village that's the way of putting it it's a whole village down there i mean people are like i'm just going to follow my true self and i'm like well which one you know i'm just going to never betray that inner voice well i have quite a few i don't know about you there's a whole village down there and so what we need is some conscious attention to what are these voices what are these instincts what are they rooted in how much of this is, is coming from a wounded place or a victim? these are sub personalities or, or the addict is speaking or um, or is this some sort of uh, unrealized shadow side you know and then beneath that you have you have the realm of the soul and the deep self and and in other words, there's a whole village and unfortunately and fortunately, the further you go in your spiritual journey the more complex you realize it really is. And those early systems that gave you all the answers just feel like, all right, well, that was helpful then, but uh, deeper we go. So, um, so maybe just a, a personal example on on the on uh, the first point here, which is to experience these forces within. One of the things that I started noticing, and my my wife kind of pointed out, is that whenever uh, I got into an argument with her, with others, or I heard something or read something that, uh, <laughs> what's the right way of putting it? That um, felt like it violated the earth. I was particularly activated. That's that's the way to say it. Um, so in other words, I'd read about, you know, Trump opened up the Arctic drilling you know, and, and I would, it's almost like I could feel it, this, this kind of ball of tension rising up and I would get defensive and angry and kind of, um, oddly emotional about an issue that I know very little about. That's the truth. I know very little about what's actually happening and, and how leases work on public land. And I could inform myself of all these things, but I, for me, at least I felt sort of, Um, I I can, (laughs) at times I can be quite ignorant of the actual issues on the ground, but what happens is that my ego would get puffed up. I'm righteous here. All those people are unrighteous. They don't care about the earth. They're suicidal. They, um, they're bent on greed and I cannot believe anyone would live like this. And that's the problem with the world and kind of, um, possessed. So what what I've been trying to do is notice when this arises. There it is. There it is. There's that old activation, puffing up, self-right, self-righteousness, mixed with anger, and even revenge, and thinking some pretty dark thoughts about what I wish would happen to these people. There it is, just to notice it. Instead of denying that it's there, recognizing, here it is, there it is, it's arising, Um, what is that? And to provide a a certain amount of curiosity around it. And more than that, are there more parts to my personality, to my being, to the village beneath, that also are weighing in here? You know, what about maybe, maybe I could activate in this moment or invite in this moment the kind of the elder? What would the elder whisper in my ear, in the in the middle of this possession, um, what would you know? And fill in the blank. What what would um, the wise sage have to say about what's happening right now? Because again, the village is present. So, my point here is, we have we in the twenty first century, and in and in two thousand twenty one we have an opportunity to take a look at these forces within and to get curious about them. What's really happening? Is this me really speaking here? Shouting off um, cliches and phrases and um, you know, the, a persona of being green? Or am I willing to look at my own hypocrisies? You know, what am I doing really on the ground? How much do I even care about my own property that I'm looking at right now as I'm making this podcast? And I see a cherry tree, and I see an elm, and I see a black walnut, and I see an apple tree with a broken limb on top that needs some help uh, come spring. So, um, just all right, I'm I'm not so righteous and pure here, uh, and that kind of that kind of can take the temperature down, but in, in an interesting way, it's doing so by by allowing these forces to to operate and bringing consciousness to them. All right, there they are, breathing into them. Oh, they're they're present. Okay. The second point that Jung makes is that we often need symbols in which to integrate these disparate and diverse forces the village beneath what kind of symbols of integration can bring these poles together so that we don't live with an iron curtain running right down the center of their of our psyches where we're on the good side and everybody else is on the bad side but when 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 the truth is we have sectioned off with barbed wire parts of ourselves that we can't look at how do we how do we get beyond that he says sometimes we need a symbol and what's coming to me now is just how powerful the symbol of the cross is. That I know oftentimes people use it um, as a kind of uh, 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 image of atonement and insider um, kind of magical uh, acceptance. And I mean, maybe there's something to say about that even. In in terms of atonement on the archetypal level, I'd have to give give that some thought. But the cross itself, as an integrator of opposites, of life and death, of underworld and upper world, of right and left, of being betwixt and between worlds, holding that in love, to be loving and wounded at the same time, that's the image of the Christ, to speak words of forgiveness and to be run through the heart. Um, that's the, the, the symbolic power of the, of the cross itself. And instead of worshiping it over there, that's something that Jesus did. I think the deepest level of Christianity and the deepest level of Christianity on the symbolic level is that this is an image of our own integration. Something that's been compelling me lately. I think I put this in my, um, in my audio book, uh, a grain of wheat, um, is the, the image of the, of the thieves on either side of Jesus, the believer and the unbeliever. See, that is an image of us, the believer and the, and the unbeliever. And the, and the ask is to allow these poles to be present and to, um, and to feel the tension between the two because it's rounding out who we are. It's bringing a level of wholeness. Yes, even I can contain both. Um, and these, these what seem like poles, get synthesized in some way. And you, you wonder why so many saints and mystics spent so much time standing before and contemplating the cross itself. Um, and we're moved by the cross. It's not just that God did this for them. That's the lowest level of reading. It's that there's it activates and helps activate an integrating principle. In what way am I betwixt and between? Am I both mortal and eternal? Um, am I both right and left? Am, am, am I both connected to the underworld? on the earth and and also with branches that go up to heaven. Do you see see what I'm saying? And one one of the things that I'm regularly arguing for is that we need these symbols. We can't just dismiss them and go with all things scientific. It just doesn't have the kind of symbolic power. It doesn't activate the imagination. It doesn't strike on the level of the soul, on the level of the heart to give people statistics, you know? You know, 27% of people, blah, 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 you know, oh, so deeply moved. No, it doesn't really do that. Um, we're image-based creatures. Um, when we go to sleep at night and we dream, this is the unconscious activating the possibility of integrating these parts. We actually meet the village within every night when we go to sleep. This is why it can be so important to find ways of of honoring and working with the dreams and allowing those dreams to shape our uh, who we think we are in the world. So, um, maybe that's enough. Said on on experiencing, allowing one to experiencing these forces within, and the possibility that that the great symbols uh, might have something to teach us. I just thought of a lot, uh, of another one. If you, if, you, if you if you if this is going a little too Christian for some of you, the Yin and the Yang symbol. There it is. Right. Right. Um, uh, Right in front of us, we're both darkness with a spot of light and we're light with a spot of darkness. And running right through the middle of us is this snake-like tension uh, of opposites. See, it's not about choosing one over the other. Um, It's about integration, which is a lifetime process. So calm down. we got some time. The second um, way out is... Probably what Carl Jung would call the path of individuation, becoming an individual, that becoming a, a more integrated and more whole individual, one who's able to hold greater and greater poles of opposites within them, is actually uh, not caught up in the mass movement. Has it, the 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 possibility that they would drink from this intoxicating wine goes way down. It's another way of saying they know who they are. They found a ground other than uh, conforming to whatever the emotional waves are. They found another ground. This is the process of the individual. And here I want to read a bit from Jung because he's got a little funny little thing here um, about the story of Jesus. He says, Did Christ, perchance, call his disciples to him at a mass meeting? (laughs) For some reason, this makes me laugh, because so much of contemporary Christianity is rooted in the masses. Almost almost the first thing you ask a past pastor is, "Is how big is your church? This happened just the other day to me. I was talking to a pastor, and I felt that question coming up, I, I and it almost came out of my mouth, and instead I just chose to observe it. I was like, okay, there it is. Why am I asking that right now? Why does it matter how big of a church you're uh, presently um, helping lead, you know? Did Christ perchance call his disciples to him at a mass meeting? You know, why didn't he? Why didn't he pack stadiums and become the wonder working miracle fix it man? I mean, he could have been way more popular. Then he says Did the feeding of the 5,000 bring him any followers who did not afterwards cry with the rest, crucify him? When even the rock named Peter showed signs of wavering? God, what a sentence! And um, even in the story in the Gospels, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and the next day, he comes back and he gets mad. He's like, you're just here because your bellies are empty again. And I think, actually, one of the lessons of the feeding of the 5,000 is that it was a mistake. It was a mistake. And um, Jesus was trying to give people bread that does not rot, to quote from Isaiah, but people just wanted bread that rots, (laughs) their bellies full, the quick fix, the magic pill, whatever. And here's the final line I'm interested in. And are not Jesus and Paul prototypes of those who, trusting their inner experience, have gone their individual ways in defiance of the world? I mean, this is what I'm saying. When you read the stories on this level, the path of radical individuation, of integration, of inner experience that you too can taste what I said at the beginning was divine love, that you can have an experience of the mystery of life that begins to order and shape and bring meaning and values and inform your ethics and morality. That kind of an inner experience is available to every single person on the planet. And by taking the inner path, it informs how we are to be in the world. Mass intoxication is taking the outer path and leaving the inner experience dormant. We might think we're having inner experiences because we're having, quote, emotional experiences, but it's just our emotions in the process of being possessed. It's saying, go into your room and shut the door. That's the line from Jesus. Go into your room and shut the door. That's where prayer happens. And I just used air quotes, but I just mean... That's the kind of inner experience that we're in, being invited into. That's where growth actually happens. Um, and I'm feeling that maybe I can just leave it at that. I've got a few more things uh, in my notes here, but that that feels like, to me, um, a kind of open-ended uh, and, I hope, inviting place. To, to land here. So I hope you heard a hint, a guess, a clue today that can take you a little further on your own wild process of of growing up. Um, and maybe I'll just end with the fuller T.S. Eliot quote here. "The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The houses are all gone under the sea. The dancers are all gone under the hill.